Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 217 of FSUP Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by a Filipino American photographer living in Southern California, Zoe Pamintuin. Zoe is a full-time teacher for middle school children and has been a photographer since she was a child herself. Her photography has been heavily influenced by Joshua Tree National Park, as well as architectural structures. Of late, she has been focused on black and white imagery and has been doing a lot of introspection with her photographic process to try to determine the meaning behind her work. And that was a large focus of our conversation on today's show. Well, okay, before we get started, I wanted to let listeners know about a very exclusive offer made available only to you. We have partnered with Nature Photographers Network, the internet's premier landscape and nature photographers website that is chock full of articles and engaging forums dedicated to our craft and art form. NPN is now offering podcast listeners a free 30-day trial to the platform, plus 20% off your first year of membership. Just head over to naturephotographers.network forward slash f-stop or find the link in the show notes to get started with your free trial. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Zoe Pamintu, and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Hey, Matt, glad to be here. Yeah, it was uh, cool to see you over in Clubhouse the other day. Oh, yeah, Clubhouse has actually been pretty interesting, you know, meeting meeting people, I mean, meeting people on, on audio. <laughs> right, and- air quotes. Maybe. Yeah, air, air quotes and, you know, just hearing other photographers and talk about something that I'm passionate about. So it's been cool. Yeah, awesome. Well, I mean, let's just cut right to the chase. I would love for people to learn a little bit more about yourself for some context uh, for our conversation. So tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you found yourself into this whole photography thing. <laughs> well, my name is Zoe and I'm actually a teacher. So I've been teaching for 26 years. And I'm like, you know, an English teacher. Um, although to about a year and a half ago, right before the, actually in 2019, at the end of 2019, I took on a position as a teacher librarian. And so that, that's been kind of interesting. Um, that's a whole other story. And then, um, you know, like I said, I've been teaching middle school and high school. Uh, I have white hairs because I'm now 50 years old because of <laughs> teaching. <laughs> My hair used to be all black. So, you know, I would point to my head and I'm like, this has your name on it. This one has your name on it. So they gave me white hairs, but it's okay. I can rock the silver look. <laughs> hey, you know, that's totally fair. I, I have a 13-year-old son and I think up he up before he was a teenager, I had I used to have a full head of hair. And as you can see, it's all gone. <laughs> so you just blame him for your bald look? <laughs> totally. Yeah, just so just imagine, you know, your son multiplied by 30 every hour. Right. right. <laughs> so that that's the life of a teacher and, and you know, I love it. I mean, teaching is fun. I tell my students I said, "I come to work to laugh at you, not with you. I don't ever need a comedy show because I have one right here. <laughs> it's like real world." And for how did I get into photography? So like I said, um I'm 50. I actually turned 50 this year. And I've actually been a photographer since I was like 10 years old. Now, I'm not like a professional photographer, which I think seems to be the dream of many people. But, you know, the I was 10 and my mom came home one day 
you know, she had this bag and she's like, Hey Zoe, I have, I bought a camera. I'm like, okay. And I'm the tinkerer in the family where, you know, since I was a little kid, I would take things apart. Like I would take uh, this clock apart because I wanted to know how it worked, put it back together. And there was leftovers. Um, my brother, I have an older brother. He would get mad at me because I would take his toys apart because I wanted to know what made that car when you pulled it back and let go, what made it keep going? So my mom's like, Hey Zoe, I bought a camera. So, you know, I open it up and it's this Pentax, ah, like Pentax MG, you know, it's this film camera and two lenses. Um, gosh, what was the, there was a telephoto lens. And I think it must've been like a 50 millimeter. And she said, can you figure this out? Oh, wow. Something new to tinker with, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I bought some film, you know, um, put it in there and this is pre like internet. So you know, you're reading the manual, like, how do you even load the film? And what do you do and stuff? So that's how I started getting into photography. And, you know, I just fell in love with it. And when you're 10 years old, you don't know why you fall in love with something, right? You're just like, oh, cool toy. So I'm just taking pictures of everything um, that I could. But, you know, I don't remember a time since then that I've really ever been without a camera. Hmm. Yeah. So that's how, you know, I've just, I fell in love with it. And it's been this love affair for 40 years now. Yeah, I'm, I'm super curious to hear about the intersection uh, between your approaches to photography and the fact that you're a teacher. Is there, is there any influence there in terms of maybe how you learn photography or you know, how you approach it? Um, you know, I think it's more the other way around where my photography has informed my teaching. Oh, um, if anything, I th I'm a natural born teacher, you know, I mean, it's such a nerdy thing to admit, but when my cousins and I would play, like we played school, <laughs> 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 that was our, you know, one, one of the things that we played and my nickname growing up was professor. <laughs> so, you know, just a natural, I think teaching is something that just, this comes very naturally to me. But in terms of which one informs which, I think it's more my creative side that has really informed my teaching. You know, I mean, you hear it say, right, that teaching is an art and a science. So I did the college thing for the science part of teaching, but the photography, I think, has informed my teaching um, because, you know, with photography, it's you have so many things out of your control, right? Um, I can't control the weather. I can't move this rock over here and for better composition, I, mean, I can't you could. I mean, well <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. We don't have to go there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like small rocks, but if I wanted to move half dome over here <laughs> because the clouds are more on this side. Um so you know, just like with photography, you have to be I, I don't even think adaptable is the word, but you have to be at peace with the chaos that can sometimes surround you when you're out in nature. And for anyone who ever teaches middle school and high school, we're surrounded by chaos on a daily basis. And, Interesting. Yeah. And, you know, you, you have to be at peace with that um, because, yeah, you, like you said, you have a 13-year-old and imagine a classroom full of 13-year-olds. No, I'm good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, they're crazy. They smell funny. You know, I mean. Oh yeah. But they're they're fun. They're a lot of fun. 
All right. Well, that's a, that's super interesting. It's funny you're talking about playing teacher because my wife told me a story that when she was growing up, that was the game she liked to play with her sisters and brothers, and she was the oldest of five. Uh-huh. And she would sit everyone down and make them like do their homework and, you know, write things out and she would grade their papers. And, and it's no surprise, of course, that like all through her life, she was like the, the teacher's pet and always overachieving and stuff uh-huh. like that. So, you know, our son is like the opposite of that. So it's like super frustrating to her. Like, why don't you want to get straight A's? You know, <laughs> right? You're like, why is that not normal? Like, you should. <laughs> You should just want that. <laughs> right. And he's like, I just want to play video games, mom. Leave me alone. <laughs> anyway. I, I didn't give people homework when we played school, but you know, and the funny thing with that is um, one of my cousins, one day I remember this distinctly because she was like, you know what? You can't just play school all the time, professor. She dragged me outside, ta- taught me how to play football. Oh. So I was like, all right, we can do this. That's fair. Well, cool. So, you know, back to the photography stuff. I'm mm-hmm. super curious to learn about what are the reasons that you've made photography such a large part of your life? <sighs> um, you know, part of it is like I was you know, relating the story earlier of wanting to figure out how things work. Um, it, if anything, it has satis- not satisfied, but it continues to nurture my natural curiosity of the world. You know, I was actually born in the Philippines and I lived there till I was nine. And we came to California when I was around, not, we were not, I was nine and we came here at the end of 1980. But growing up, and I grew up like in the country, you know, so I didn't grow up in Manila. I didn't grow up in a big city. Where I grew up, I was surrounded by sugarcane fields and rice fields and coconut plantations. I mean, just way out into the country. Hmm. And so I, distinctly remember, you know, where we would go outside and my parents would put out a blanket and we'd lay out in the blanket at night and my mom would teach us the constellations and, you know, going on early morning walks with my dad. And I was just curious, like, what are those points of light? How does that work? Um, Just always curious about everything. And so when I discovered photography, you know, I, I, I just wanted to point my camera at everything, anything and everything, right? <laughs> yeah, <that laughs> You're just right. like, That's how, how does too. this work? And I think also with learning how to shoot film first, you know, there's, and I don't know if you've ever shot film, um, you know, you, 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 there's no chimping, right? You can't just like look at your back of your camera and say, okay, I got the shot or not. And so there was that sense of waiting for your film to come back in and looking at those pictures and going, oh, I didn't do that right. And then let me try that again. And so it just was something that, (laughs) no pun intended, captured my attention. (laughs) (laughs) And as I got older and, you know, it just, it became, it became very much like breathing to me. I carried that camera everywhere. You know, I got a job when I was 16 and spent my money on film and developing um, and then getting into college, I took um, some develop some classes. So because I wanted to learn how to develop in the dark room, and that was like eye opening. You know, seeing that, seeing your pictures literally develop in front of you, and learning how to use an enlarger and all of that, and it it became so much a part of you know it is so much a part of who I am. Um, and as I've gotten older, it has really made me realize that. 
because I started so young, uh, I learned to see through the lens. I mean, literally like through the eyes of a camera. Because you know how it is when you're when you first get a new lens or something, like you have to learn to see in that focal length, right? Like we don't see in wide angle. Well, you have to right. learn how to see in wide angle. You know, we don't see in, you know, 200 millimeter focal length. We have to learn how to see that. And so it, it it always was something, there's always something there for me to learn how to do. And not just learn how to do, but like, and it's, it's so hard to explain this. Um, in a way, it it helps me to understand my world because when I look back on it now, you know, now that I'm a lot older and look back on it, there's it's finding that essence is what it is, you know. Because with a camera, it's it's more than just what you focus on. It's like what are you cutting out of that frame? And more importantly to me, it's like why am I focusing on that something? And then. Once I've taken those photographs, you know, I have this backlog, not backlog, but, you know, I have a collection of photographs I've taken over the years and then seeing certain patterns come about with that. And it just helps me to understand more of who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's like a a tool for introspection. Yeah, because, you know, which I'm sure a lot of, you know, I've heard a lot of your previous guests and they're like, oh, I'm an introvert. (laughs) Right. <laughs> I mean, it, that seems to be the uh, the stereotype of us photographers, right? We're we're introverts. That's why you know. Well, leave nature me alone. photographers, anyway. Yeah, nature photographers, right? We're like, leave me alone. I want to just go and go out in nature. Yeah, you know, I want to be around people. I just want to be by myself. Yeah, all those uh, extroverts are shooting weddings. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've done weddings, and I don't know how they do that. <laughs> it's tough. It is really tough. I'm like, teaching is actually easier. Um, but going back to, you know, what, what was it about it that continues to keeps me so interested? You know, like you said, it is a tool for introspection because I can look at these photographs that I've taken and start to see a theme through it. And a lot of times I'm not even aware that that's what I'm going, that that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. That, you know, I'm taking a photo because it's what I'm interested in. And then it's like, oh, now that I can see it, now that makes much more sense to me why I was drawn to that. Um, There's, it's eight years ago, I had, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Oh. And through that experience, you know, it was, it was, thank goodness we found it early. It was like stage one. But I had to have some major abdominal surgery for them to remove the cyst that had the tumor inside. And like I lost, I don't know, 30 pounds. Like I was barely 90 pounds when I had the surgery. And I remember coming out of that and talking to my surgeon. And, you know, I said, What are some things I need to keep in mind? He said, You cannot lift anything heavy. I said, well, how heavy is heavy? And he's like, <laughs> Define heavy. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you know, what does heavy mean? We're we talking a 70 to 200 or? <laughs> well, that's where my brain was, right? I was like, well, what right. do you mean by heavy? <laughs> and he looked at me, he goes, a pan that you cook your eggs in would be too heavy for you. Oh, no. Yeah, because you know, I have this eight inch scar, this abdominal scar. And he goes, you cannot just be, because he was like a, a heavy dictionary. You can't be lifting that. And then in my head, I'm like, how am I supposed to take photographs? And at that time I had a 5D Mark II 
you know, with 24 to 70 L lens, a 70 to 200. I mean, those things are a beast of a camera, right? And I was like, I can't lift that. What What am I going to do? You know, so, um, but interestingly, through that experience, my photo, my photography really changed, hmm. you know, because I had to take a medical leave. I was out for a semester and, and I don't know if you've ever been bedridden and been stuck in bed because that's what had happened to me. And, you know, I'm a very active person being outdoors, um, you know, always love to go travel and all those kinds of things, love to go hiking. And then here I was confined to my bed for like months. Months. Yeah. I don't, I've never had it that long. I think my longest stint was like two weeks. Yeah, this was, this was months. I had to take an entire semester off from work. I couldn't even go to work. You know, I could barely, at that point I was, cause I had lost so much muscle mass. I'd, I would have to walk with a cane anywhere. And that was really hard to process because, you know, you're, you're just trying to make it through the day. You're just trying to make it through the next five minutes, the next 10 minutes. And I didn't know how to process that. You know, I mean, you go on the internet and be like, what do you do when, you know, I, I didn't know who, there was nobody that had gone through this, a similar experience that I knew. And I was processing it. You know, I knew that somehow my brain would process it. My emotions would process it. And it was actually coming out through my photography. Um, I look back on those photos and there's a distinct change in the feel not necessarily the subject matter, but just the feel of the photographs. Were you cognizant of that at the time that you were creating them? Not really. Like the time I was taking them, no, because interestingly, the first, so I got sick right around May and then, you know, then it was a saga, um, this big journey that was going through. I wasn't well enough to even go anywhere until about, gosh, when did we go? I think it was uh, January or February around there. I took a trip with my cousin and we went to New York for a week, for 10 days, because you know we were celebrating me getting better. Um, she had gone through breast cancer like years before. And so we were like, okay, you know, we're, we're going to, this will be our celebratory trip. And so that's all I was like, oh, it's New York, never been to New York. You know, I love architecture. So I'm taking photos and everything. And it wasn't until I came home and started processing through those photographs that I even started to see that something felt different with that. And interestingly, a friend of mine from work, he's actually the band teacher, excuse me, he was a band teacher. He commented to me one day, because I had been posting them on Facebook back when I had Facebook. And he was like, something feels different about your photographs. And I was like, yeah, something does feel different, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was that made it feel different. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't even until years later that I could even voice what that was. So that to me is why photography is such you know, a, a foundational part of who I am, because it really helps me to understand something that I can't put words to. Which, you know, it's like the whole cliche, right? Picture is worth a thousand words. Right. You know, Which is I funny coming from an English uh, teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that, that's, that's what's funny to me. Like as an English teacher, like, oh, I should be able to write these down. But <laughs> Right. <laughs> Can't you just get a journal like everyone else? <laughs> <laughs> no, because, you know, it's like when you write English papers, it's 
there, you know, to me, it's like, I'm not a, I'm not a writer in that sense, even though I'm an English teacher, I've never felt the need to like write the great American novel. You know, I love those. I mean, I read a lot. So I love those authors who can do that, but I'm like, I write academic papers. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I write literary analysis. You write the, uh, the manual to the film camera. <laughs> well, maybe an English teacher should write those manuals because you read them and you're like, what are these saying? <laughs> right. Well, so, you know, thinking back on when you looked at your images from that period of time and how they shifted, could you, can you articulate what the differences are? You know, the interesting thing about that time period, I came out of, I came out of that surgery. I remember going into surgery and giving my cousin my iPod and it was queued up. I said, I need you to give this to me after I come out of the surgery. And you know, my surgery was only supposed to take like an hour and a half, two hours. And I was in there for six hours. And so, yeah, because they had found cancer because apparently when they're not sure if you have cancer or not, they biopsy you while you're on the operating table. Oh, wow. Because, you know, they want to make sure that if they take this mass out that, yeah, you know, they want to make sure that if they take the mass out, that if it's cancerous, they're going to explore and take samples to make sure that it hasn't um, metastasized. Right. Otherwise you have to cut you open like 10 more times. Yeah. Which is not fun. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That makes sense. I appreciate the efficiency in that. (laughs) Yeah, I do too. So, you know, I was in there for six hours, my family's getting worried and everything, but you know, when you're uh, under anesthesia, you don't even, it's a very weird sense of you know you've lost time, but it doesn't feel like you've lost time. And so I come out of the surgery and, you know, I see my family. I'm on morphine, <laughs> loopy from morphine. And I asked my cousin for my iPod. And it was music that was instrumental music. And the interesting thing to me was it took a good three or four years for me to even listen to music that have words. Because in addition to being a photographer, I'm also a musician. I play like five or six different instruments. Um, and, you know, I'm surrounded with music all, all the time. And I couldn't even listen to anything that had words because it was, it was, I felt so viscerally raw. And, you know, that was going through my, I'm trying to process all of that. And then the, the most interesting part about the whole thing, I kept having these visions of these finished painting pieces, abstract art that I wanted to, that I felt I needed to do. And then I was like, this is so weird because I actually consider myself more of a black and white photographer than a color photographer. A lot of what I do is really in black and white. And I said, this is so strange to me that, and I would dream about these paintings. I even bought, you know, I went to the store and bought canvases. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I'm not a painter, but I dreamt about it, so let's go. Yeah, and I thought, you know what, this is strange. Um, why why am I seeing visions of these? And then there were large canvases, you know, not these little paintings, but like, I don't know, 16 by 20 and larger canvases. I, I bought the paints, I bought the canvases. I actually never even did anything with them um, because I didn't know how to do it. And I said, well, can I do this through my photography? And interestingly, in my photography, it... It worked itself out somehow, you know, again, with through the black, you know, I thought, oh, well, I'll take color photos. It didn't happen. It was like, 
I could only do it through processing the photographs in black and white. And the difference seemed to be, I wouldn't call it minimalism, but this sense of I'm looking at, it was more, it was more graphic, more geometric. Hmm. You know, it was interesting actually being in New York while this was all going, you know, in my head subconsciously, emotionally, um, where I was really drawn to very abstract graphical elements of scenes. Mm. It's almost as if you were trying to make sense of the chaos in your life through the lens. Yeah, that's how it felt like, you know, where I was very much connecting to how the, you know, the lines and the curves and, and all of those elements those, you know, those geometrical elements working in through the composition. In a sense, it's like, you've seen the Walt Disney Concert Hall, right? I don't think I have, actually. It's the Frank Gehry's Walt Disney Concert Hall, photographs of it. No. Oh, well, <laughs> he's a very interesting architect. You should look him up. Um, in fact, John Barkley had a series of photos he posted of Walt Disney Concert Hall. And okay. I, I've, I've, that's one of, my, one of my absolute favorite buildings to photograph. It's in New York? No, it's in LA. Oh, in LA. Okay. Mm -hmm. See, obviously I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think he has a building in New York. I actually didn't get the chance to see it, but you know, he designed the Bilbao Museum in Spain. Um, okay. So Frank Gehry is a very, very interesting architect. He's, a, he's one of my favorite architects. But what's interesting about this building is it is it has no right angles. Oh. Yeah. The whole thing, like especially the outside has no right angles because he wanted, he said he wanted to embody like a, a musical score. Hmm. I'm sure and, the mechanicals mechanical engineer love that one. Oh yeah. And so it's, you know, when they were building it, I was reading this article and the engineers were like, we can't build this. What do you mean there are no right <laughs> angles? Right. Like this is not going to stand. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, you have these architects with these grandiose designs and the engineers are like, that's not going to work. <laughs> Come on, man. Do you even know how gravity works? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> and so the reason I bring this up is because, you know, the whole idea that geometry can somehow embody emotion, because as a musician, you know, I'm very much connected to my emotional side. I think that's what I was going through when I was in New York was looking for those elements, you know, those lines and curves that somehow helped me more to like get to the heart of what I was feeling. Mm. You know, like you said, yeah, there was a lot of chaos. You know, when, when your body is, when you don't feel at home in your body because of an illness, it's very frustrating. Mm -hmm. And by trying to get to the heart of what that was like underneath, you know, that chaotic, that just underneath that chaos, it's like, you know, storm on an ocean, it's chaos on with the waves but it's that underneath that there's a lot of quietness and that's what I was looking for because outwardly I felt very chaotic. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, uh, geometric shapes can have a lot of symbolism in, mm -hmm. in our photography. And if you get a chance, you should, um, Charlotte Gibb actually has a fantastic presentation that kind of helps walk you through what different shapes what those shapes have meaning about and what they symbolize. And it's, you know, you, then you start to see those things in nature and you're like, ah, oh, I know how I can use that. 
So it's actually a very, I think it's interesting that you, it sounds like you, you've kind of naturally discovered that Mm -hmm. um, and to some degree on your own, but that's. Like I, I look at a lot of art and I've, I've taken a few classes on art and art history and things like that. And so that I know has influenced the way that I've done my compositions and my photography, you know, and how, why somebody would use or compose a scene in this way. Like, you know, you look at Van Gogh and his paintings are so symbolic and metaphorical. And I think that's just something that has just come out into my photography in terms of what I'm searching for. I'm curious uh, when you're, when you're creating this work or when you're looking at it afterwards, are you um, consciously aware of what the image is uh, trying to represent and or process for for you? I don't think so. Because a lot of times um, I'm much more intuitive in my approach when it comes to my creativity. So it's like, it's like I tell my nephews, I have twin nephews, they're 15. And I've been teaching them how to, one of them teaching them how to play guitar. The other one, he, you know, sometimes uh, he's wanting to learn some piano. And I always tell my nephew who's playing guitar, I said, you know, I'd be a much better musician if I could read notes <laughs> because I don't. Um, I play mostly by ear. And, you know, I t- he's like, well, Auntie, why don't you learn how to read? I said, because I'm kind of lazy about it. Um, I kind of laughed. <laughs> yeah. You know, because I was like, well, when we first moved here to America, you know, it wasn't like my parents are rich or anything. So, you know, life was, money was tight when I was growing up. But I had taught myself how to play piano at my cousin's house because we had actually lived with them for the first year that we were here. And then we moved to where, you know, we moved um an hour away. And my mom saw this. And so without me knowing, I came home one day, Matt, and there was a piano in the house. And I was like, oh, well, where did that come from? And my mom's like, oh, well, we bought it because you want, you like playing piano. So then she signed me up for piano lessons. I took piano lessons. I don't even think I lasted a year because I would just watch what my teacher was doing because, you know, she'd show me what the piece was and I just watched what she was doing. And then when the next week I'd have to, you know, do the piece for her, I pretended to read the notes. <laughs> but, you know, it was more like, well, I kind of figured it out and just played it by ear. And then I gave that up because I was like, this isn't going to work. Yeah, that only gets you so far, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's the same approach I have with photography, you know, um, as much as I love you know, tinkering with things and finding out how things work. I didn't spend a lot of time like with the technical aspects of photography. And, you know, maybe that was because we didn't have the internet. You can't, you know, it's not like when I was growing up, I could just turn on the TV and be like, oh, what does this button do? And what does that do? And what is aperture, right? You you just like, look at the manual and it kind of sort of explains it, but you're like, I don't really know what that means. And it wasn't even until college where I learned you know, the exposure triangle, Um, so a lot of my approaches to my photography is, you know, it's very intuitive. Like often I don't have a set agenda when I go out and photograph, uh, as a teacher, I don't get a chance to do it during the week. Not really. Cause pretty exhausted at the end of the day when you've been dealing with kids all day. Um, you know, I'll go out on the weekends or take like a long weekend trip. And then what I do on those long weekend trips, it's like, I've been talking to people, (laughs) you know, I talk for a living. 
So when I'm on these trips, I'm like, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to say anything. <laughs> I just want to just photograph. And so it's very intuitive. And I just open myself up to whatever it is that I'm feeling, to whatever it is that I'm thinking, and kind of try to get into this flow state when I'm out in the field. You know? Yeah, totally. I don't, I don't know about you, but that, um, that approach of having a plan that's very rigid and set forward, that can be almost counterproductive to the whole process of why we're engaging in photography to begin with as a, as a means for reducing stress and, and enjoying nature and things like that. So, so I, I, I can totally appreciate what you're saying about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pick a place like, Oh, I want to go, you know, say for instance, I want to spend a weekend at, at Bishop up in Northern, you know, central California. I want to go to Bishop and during fall, that's about as much as I'll plan for that trip because I don't know what nature has in store for me. You know, I don't, I don't want to be so set on, I want to get this shot at this time in this season. And then when it doesn't work out, be totally disappointed. Yeah. That, that, that's typically what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I can appreciate those who really plan when they're out on a photography um, excursion, because maybe they can only do photography so many times a year, or, you know, they could be like a professional photographer and their livelihood depends on getting certain shots. So I'm, I appreciate the fact that because I have a job that, you know, is not related to my artistic endeavors that I can have the freedom to just be like, Oh, I'll just see what, what this trip brings me. Well, yeah. I mean, and if you're, professional who you know lives in a van you have a lot the luxury to stay at the same location for like 20 days until you get this the light you like you know what i mean yeah i'm always jealous when i see that i'm like oh i want to do that yeah fact, i think that's it probably is not as glorious as it sounds I wanted to pause for a moment to tell listeners about a unique and exclusive offer available only to you. I am offering one-on-one -on -one customized outdoor photography experiences where I help you discover and reconnect with nature through the lens. These adventures are only available a few times per year and they are booking quite quickly. So reach out soon to reserve your spot. Okay, let's get back to our great chat with Zoe. I was going to ask this earlier, but you were saying so many great things. But, um, you know, if, if photography has been such a huge part of your life, I was curious why you never or if you ever wanted to pursue it on a professional basis. And if not, why? You know, I asked myself the same thing. <laughs> um, interestingly enough, about, oh, I'd say maybe three or four years ago, I reconnected with um, someone I went to college with. You know, she had seen my photos on Facebook and was always like very intrigued by them and everything. And then, you know, we, we happened to actually live in the same dorm when we were going to school. And so she asked me the same question. She's like, Zoe, why have you not done this? You know, why don't you pursue this professionally? I, you know, you're, you're good at what you do. I love your photos. She just connected to my photography. And in fact, we kicked around the idea of 
you know, doing like a mounting a photo show at her home. Um, it never went really anywhere other than it was, it was great to talk to a fellow artist. She's not a photographer. She's actually a singer songwriter, but to talk to another creative person and to talk about art was always, you know, we always had really good conversations. And I think part of the reason why I never pursued it, I think about it all the time. Like I'm sure a lot of people do like, Oh, that'd be fun. And just, you know, take pictures all day. And I was in a clubhouse um, room earlier before this conversation. And some, you know, there was a professional photographer on there and he's like, 80% of what you do isn't photography. <laughs> you know, totally, totally true. Right. He's like, um, a lot of times you're just answering emails, you know, I was gonna say, how much do you like emails and <laughs> spreadsheets and, uh, -huh. Um, dealing with taxes and banks. <laughs> yeah, that's what he was saying. He was like, it's not all what it's cracked up to be. Um, Filling out forms for permits. Uh-huh, right. It's, you know, losing time with your family kind of thing. So part of the reason is I have zero interest in business. I'm just, I don't like, maybe I should have taken a business class when I was in school, but I didn't. and business is so foreign to me, you know, the whole marketing thing. Um, and maybe I come more from that era where, you know, it, it, it feels business always felt so salesy to me, like mm -hmm. used car salesman kind of salesy negative view of it, which I know is not true at all. Um, and that's the big part of it. It's like, I didn't know how to market myself. I mean, growing up, it wasn't like there was the internet, <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't Twitter or Instagram or any of those kinds of things. So it was like, I, I didn't even know that you could be a professional nature photographer, a professional landscape photographer. It just seemed so um, removed from what was possible. And maybe because, you know, Ansel Adams was somebody like one of my photography heroes, right? Or Galen Rowell. And then you look at them, you go, Oh, wow. That's so cool. But it never entered my mind to go, I could do that. When I see photographs of behind the scenes of Galen Rowell hanging off, you know, the side of a mountain harnessed up with his camera. And I'm like, well, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's for sure. And then, you know, Ansel Adams is like in a whole other galaxy. Um, you know, cause I held him, you know, I mean, it's Ansel Adams and you think, Oh, wow. He's, Ansel Adams, and I could never do that. So it just, it never entered my mind to even try I, to do this professionally. Have you read his biography? No, actually I haven't. And I've heard it's you mention it. Very interesting. It, it, um, it, it definitely paints a different light in terms of it not being all glory. Mm -hmm. Who's the author of that? Uh, Mary Street Ollander. Okay. It's very, it's very good. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, I've heard you mention it. And I was like, you know, I'm going to have to look that up and, and read it. I mean, I've read some other things of his. Yeah, it really helped put things into perspective for me because I think, mm -hmm. you know, especially in the age of social media, so, so much of what we see online is, you know, you only see the good things. Yeah. You know, you don't, you don't see the hours and hours and hours people spend behind the scenes doing the stuff that we hate uh, <laughs> in order to make it happen. You know what I mean? Like... Like, you know, same with podcasts, like, oh, it must be so amazing. It's like, yeah, it's awesome. Editing but, podcasts for hours and hours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I, I can understand some of that with the podcast editing because, you know, with this year being working from home, like I've had to do a lot of screencasts and, you know, right. show kids how to do stuff. And me being me, I was like, well, I'm not using, you know, this, that sounds terrible. So I have all these like mics because I do music recording here in my office and then learning how to, you know, edit audio for, you know, like a five minute screencast. <sighs> I'm like, oh my gosh, it doesn't take me five minutes to edit. It's like, take, sometimes it can take you an hour because you read the script, you mess up, you know, you have to right. retake, you have to edit this and cut this and move this. I was like, oh my gosh, it's totally. a lot of work. It is, yeah. Well, so kind of shifting a little bit, I'm mm -hmm. curious uh, what other motivations you have to make photographs. You know, we talked about the approach for using it as a vehicle for personal exploration and mm -hmm. dealing with, you know, things happening in your life. But I'm curious what other things motivate you to make images. I'm a very emotional person. Um, some of the terms I've heard used are like highly, uh, what is it called? Highly sensitive person. I don't know if there's an official psychological definition, um, but being a very emotional person, it's almost like it's almost like I'm, I'm an empath. I, I can walk into a room and sense what the emotions are, what's happening. And I think that's part of what's made me a good teacher because, you know, as your students are coming in, as they're coming into my classroom, it's like I'm, I'm doing quick snapshots of their emotional state. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes you pull out a kid and you're like, something's going on. And it's not because they're crying or anything. It's just I can see it. I can sense it. Pull them out. And use that to my advantage to, you know, help that student out at that moment. So part of why I love photography so much is because I'm so sensitive, you know, I'm sensitive, not just to emotions. I'm actually very sensitive to place, you know, whatever place I'm in. And it can often be very overwhelming, you know, like standing in Yosemite Valley is very overwhelming sensorily, you know, emotionally. And photography helps me to, mitigate is not the right word, but it helps to put, like, uh, barrier maybe not is not even the right word, but it helps me to understand because it helps me to figure out, instead of trying to focus on everything all at once, it says, okay, let's take a look here. Let's, let's narrow your field of view to this little tiny rectangle. And by doing that and focusing on the small through that, you know, viewfinder, it helps me to understand more of the rest of the picture, the rest of that place. And it helps me to figure out what that connection is. Because oftentimes when I go out and photograph, you know, I don't consciously say I'm looking for this, but I know that this interior landscape that I have I'm looking for a reflection of the of my interior landscape in the external landscape. So that's what draws me to these scenes is because something has resonated within that external landscape that I'm finding within me. Um, you know, for example, like right now, the wallpaper I have on my computer, it's this very stormy scene and these clouds are almost blue because, you know, this is incoming storm. And I can think back to what was happening. And that was, you know, within two or three years after I had my surgery, after um, that whole ordeal I had, and I felt very much 
like still being in that storm. In fact, I have another photograph from this one day where I didn't even, I didn't even see it until I looked at it in the, in the computer. I was, you know, taking a picture of the ocean with these giant storm clouds. And then I pull it up on Lightroom. And as I'm, you know, as we photographers do, we start pixel peeping. I'm looking at the horizon and I see a boat. There wasn't a boat there when, well, I didn't notice the sailboat, but then I saw it. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, that sailboat is me. This tiny sailboat, you know, in the midst of this storm, this incoming storm, and still the sailboat goes on. And so that reflects into that interior landscape of, I've been through something difficult. Granted, I didn't have to go through chemo, which I'm thankful for. But it was very traumatic. And seeing that in that photograph, you know, helped me to say, okay, even though there's a storm, we can still sail through that storm. And so it's that resonance that oftentimes I'm subconsciously looking for, and then it makes itself known in the photographs. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it's similar to myself. I mean, you're not always aware that it's happening. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that know, interesting? Yeah, it is. It's, you know, like we, we have this inter- this internal voice, right? That, that you know, we have this constant conversation. I don't know about you, but there's always constant conversation in my head. And uh, I, I'm not, I don't have that problem. I'm just <laughs> kidding. <laughs> That's why I, I don't sleep. <laughs> there's medications for that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, it's not telling me to do something. Not yet. Right. I wish it would. Like, <laughs> yeah, sometimes. right. Sometimes I wish it would tell me, like, what are the lotto numbers so that I can quit right? my job. Or if you just point your camera at that, you'll become a millionaire. <laughs> I I wish it was that easy. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I think Instagram makes it seem that way, right? Like, oh yeah. If you go viral, yeah. then you'll be famous. And right. I'm like, mm, will you really be? Is it really satisfying? I forgot what the question was. <laughs> no, it's just interesting that, um, you know, often what we discover on our images mm-hmm. isn't always, it's a process, right? Like, and it's, it's not something that we're always aware of in the moment yeah. that comes to us later. Yeah. Have you ever had that where you, you know, saw a photograph that helped, like, you weren't aware that that's what you were taking, but then when you looked at it later, it gave you much more insight into who you were? Yeah, I feel like occasionally that will happen for me, but it's it's not usually until I'm looking at it later to process it. And then I realize that, that there's more to it than just a pretty picture. Yeah. Yeah. You know, something that helps me with that is printing. Mm. You know, where... In fact, I'm a little sad this week because my printer, I I have to replace my printer head. It kind of died on me. And, you know, learning growing up and learning photography and working in the darkroom, there's something very, um, there's something very special about that experience of seeing your photograph slowly come to life. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, I don't know if you've ever worked in the darkroom. I, I have not. Yeah, it's you know it's so different with you know, popping this SD card and 
there it is, right? Yeah, I'm sure it's a completely different process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's akin to, you know, you look at a raw file and you're like, oh, well, let, let me work on that raw file. And then you get this final image and you're like, yes. But in the dark room, it's, you know, it slowly comes into, um, like the photograph slowly starts to become more real. And then, you know, you get it and, you know, you're still like in a dark room with these red lights and you're looking at your photo. Like it's really, you know, I can't tell a hundred percent because it's still kind of dark in here. And then you take it outside and then you go, Oh yeah, this is what I was going for. It's not just like printing, you know, one image that will tell me all these things about myself. It's actually seeing it and printing a lot of images and seeing and organizing, not just organizing the images because, you know, oh, well, I like all of these photos because they're all of fall or something or organizing them by a trip. It's like, what is common within these photos? So for instance, uh, I was, this was this friend I was talking about earlier and I was at her house and, you know, I had a stack of, I don't know, must've been like 50 of my photographs. And we were, you know, I was just kind of putting them in, in different piles to, to see what photos, if I was to put on a show, would work together. And as I'm sorting these photos, I start to see these patterns, you know, and again, it's very subconscious. I wasn't like this one, photo A has to be with photo B and photo C and these photos, you know, and it wasn't even a conscious thing. And what I started to see was this photograph, and it was specifically a photo of, and it was in a square format. It was a photo of not Mount Whitney. I don't know if you've been to um, Mount Whitney in the Lone Pine area. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar with the scene. Yeah. You know, so there's Mount Whitney, there's the Alabama Hills, but next to Mount Whitney is, I think it's called Bishop, um, I think it's Bishop Ridge or Bishop Mountain or something, but Anyway, I had taken this photograph of it and, you know, it was cropped it to the square format and it was a very graphic portrait of this mountain. And I'm looking at it and I said, and I'm talking to my friend and I said, this, this reminds me of another photograph. And I grabbed a similar, almost a similar composition to the Broad Museum, which is a museum right next to the Walt Disney Concert Hall in LA. And I was like, it's very interesting that these two go together. And then my brain was like, picked out a photograph, you know, another photograph. And I think it was, and again, it's in the square format and picked up this photograph of Walt Disney Concert Hall. And I was like, this is related to, and then I picked up a photograph of Joshua Tree Rocks. And even from that, I was like, this is a series. And right now it's called the Versus series. And it's one of those things where it wasn't even something I was consciously trying to do, but by looking at a stack of printed photos I had, it revealed itself. So now it's more of, there's a little bit more intention when I go out because I'll have in my mind how I want, you know, what's the next series of photographs. And, and one of them is, is a photograph of Walt Disney Concert Hall. And in looking at that, there's this sense I have that the partner to that photograph is in Joshua Tree, in those rocks. I just haven't found it yet. It hasn't revealed itself to me yet. And so it's, it's very much that intuitive process 
that keeps me so fascinated with photography because I'm like, okay, so I'm working on the series somehow. And then I'm starting to understand more of how that relates back to me. What are you trying to say through the, those intent, that intention in that series? I think there's this, there's a conversation. Um, I haven't quite, you know, again, it's like, I haven't quite put it all into words just yet, but there's this conversation between these geometric forms that capture the essence of a place. And it's this conversation that it's having with the architecture because it's what it is. It's like, it's specifically architecture. So I have on one hand nature and it's more not like trees or living nature, like biological nature. It's like rocks, geographic nature, you know, geology. And it, there's a conversation going on between that and the architecture. And it seems to, to me to be saying, you know, man builds, humans build buildings and architects design these buildings in the hope of, uh, notoriety is not the word, but in the hope of their name being carried through, you know, because like that, you, you look at a Frank Gehry building and you, you know it's a Frank Gehry building or... Right, you're trying to leave a lasting impact about your life. Yeah, you know, you look at Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water, right? I mean, this building has, which is apparently needing a lot of renovations, but it's this interesting building that he designed and you know there's like a lego set after that <laughs> building right um and on one hand it's this legacy that these architects are leaving you know man's legacy upon the earth mm -hmm. and then the geology these rocks these formations that have been there for millions of years you know that say well you may be trying that but we're still here and we've still, you know, we've, these rocks are in, in, in some senses saying we've been here because there's that element of being a touchstone to time. Because I know that when I put my hands on those rocks, whether it's in Alabama Hills or at Joshua Tree or Yosemite, I'm like, I'm touching something that has been here for millions of years. And it seems to me to say, you know, the, the, the rocks seem to say, We'll be here long after the buildings have gone back to dust. It's an interesting statement. Yeah, but that's what that's what they seem to be saying. I haven't. It's not a finished series. Uh, how, how how will you know when it's finished? I'm not really sure how I'll know when it's finished. I think it come it'll come down to actually mounting and pr you know printing those photographs and mounting them the way that they need to be, which is they need to be side by side. And then to look at, you know, how many actually go together without it being too overwhelming. Because if you have too many, then it, it, the message becomes lost, I think. Like the impact becomes lost. So I'm not sure. I, I, I'm getting the sense it's three to five pieces. Okay. Well, more like, well, three to five pairs. Okay. So we'll see. <laughs> Because I don't, I don't know where. So six to ten. Yeah, six to ten. I think is what it is. Um, so I've I've printed these photographs and I've got them in small, but they need to be maybe twenty by twenty inch pieces, maybe even thirty by thirty inch pieces. That's interesting. That <clears throat> that's the number that you arrived at. 
we have a project submission category for our um, new competition, the the Natural Landscape mm-hmm. Photography Awards, and uh-huh. it's six to ten. Yeah, I you know I I've been thinking about that when I heard you talking about it on another podcast, and I was like, huh, I wonder if I actually have those pieces because I need to go back into my Lightroom catalog and and see if I actually have enough of those to put together. That'd be very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll see. Well, cool. No, that's awesome. I, I, <clears throat> it's hard for me to see the world in those themes, but I think part of that is because I'm often not seeking intention when I'm out. I'm usually just reacting, which I kind of, I like, it's more of like what I enjoy, you know, but I can totally appreciate that approach for sure. You know, it's, if anything, me teaching, and like, I didn't go into teaching because the pay was great. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, is that why you didn't go into professional photography? (laughs) I mean, you know, I make a lot more money being a teacher than, I've I've heard it said so many times now where people are like, you know, it's it's a tough go of being a landscape or a nature photographer, like to make, you know, the buco bucks. Um, so I'm sticking with teaching for now, you know, the world needs more good teachers than landscape photographers anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Right. You know, there, there's going to be a teach. I mean, there is a teaching shortage, so the more people we can get into teaching and so many of us are going to be retiring soon, but going back to, you know, the way that I think and why it, I approach my photography so intuitively is because I think in metaphors, you know, as an English teacher, I went into that subject, not because I wanted to teach English. I wanted to be a teacher, but I was an English major because I love to read, which is typical of a lot of English majors. And, you know, and as somebody who loves literature, it's all about what is not being said. You know, it's all about those metaphors. It's all about reading between the lines. It's all about, you know, what is the theme? What is, why do we read that story? It's like my nephews reading Romeo and Juliet and, you know, they're like, auntie, why do I have to read this? I know they die at the end. <laughs> and then, you know, my, my students would say the same thing. Cause they're like, well, we all know they die at the end. So what's the point of reading Romeo and Juliet? And it's like, well, you read Romeo and Juliet because what was Shakespeare really trying to say? He was trying to say that young love can be often foolish and reckless. I mean, they only knew each other for 24 hours. <laughs> You know, so with, with me think, I think in metaphors and that's part of the reason why a lot of what I do is black and white. This is why I love black and white photography, because it's like the difference between reading a novel versus reading a poem. Mm -hmm. So to me, black and white photography is very much a poem, whereas color photography is very much like a short story, a novel, you know, there's so much going on there. And often I'm overwhelmed by a lot of color. Mm -hmm. And so with black and white photography, you know, because I'll, I'll, I've seen where people have talked about it or I've seen videos and they're like, well, you know, if the color isn't working, just make it black and white. Like it's an afterthought. Whereas I actually have all been there. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You're like, oh, that color cast I can't get rid of. Let me just turn it black and white. Yeah. (laughs) 
let me make it, you know, let me add some grain and make it artsy. Right. Oh, there's no color in the clouds. Black and white. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, But for me, you know, it's, and maybe that's the influence of Ansel Adams, you know, Ansel Adams, Edward Weston, you know, um, Alfred Stieglitz, you have Dorothea Lange, you know, Margaret Bork White. I mean, those are the heroes I looked up to and looked at their, their photographs. And so it was always like, wow, you know, black and white, black and white photographs. But to me, it's like, I think more in black and white because it's just like reading a poem. You can read a poem and you go, well, what does that really mean? Whereas it may take 200 pages of a novel to say the same thing that a poem can say in 20 lines. And that's what I'm really drawn to. And I think I see, I know that I see the world that way. It's always metaphorically. And that very much seeps into what I do with my photography, you know, whether it's when I'm shooting or when I'm processing the photos and how I'm editing them and controlling the tones in that photograph. It's like, what am I really trying to say? What am I seeing? Mm -hmm. What is it saying to me? Yeah. No, I like that. So other than, you know, metaphors and introspection, I'm, I'm curious what other life lessons has photography taught you along your journey? Photography teaches you to be, well, patient, obviously, with because if that cloud is over there, you need to wait for it to get over here. Yes, um, yes, this is true. <laughs> or it'll teach you how really impatient you are, actually. <laughs> right? You know, uh, More than you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of the story of my cousin. We were in Sedona. Um, we were at the Oak Creek Crossing. I don't know if you've been there. It's the famous shot, you know, of Sedona with the... Um, the spires kind of thing. Uh-huh. It's, it's like the quintessential Sedona shot. Yeah, it's Oak Creek sure. crossing. And we were there and, you know, I have my big camera and she has her little point and shoot. And you know, I'm like, Oh, the clouds are here. So yeah, I'm just exploring. I'm walking around getting a feel for the place. And I'm kind of complaining. Cause this is, you know, back when I was younger and I'm kind of complaining like, Oh, I'm not getting the shot. I want, I, why, you know, why aren't the clouds here, et cetera. And so forth. And then, we take our shots, we, we spend the day, we get back to our hotel room and then we start comparing photos. And I was like, wait a minute, why do you have that shot? And I don't have that shot. She's like, because dummy, you decided not to wait for the clouds. You decided to go take a walk. <laughs> and so she had actually gotten this really cool shot and I didn't. And I was so upset, you know, like I'm the photographer and you're not. She to this day, and this is maybe 20 years ago, to this day teases me about it. She's like, I still got a better shot than you at Sedona. <laughs> nice. Um, so yeah, definitely, you know, learning how to be patient um, mm-hmm. and learning, as I was saying, learning to be at peace with your circumstances because so much of, you know, nature photography and landscape photography, like I was saying, you you can't control the weather. You can't control, you know, that the wind is blowing too much and you're trying to get a certain shot. It's like, you have to accept, you have to accept what the circumstances are there and not just to accept it, but to adapt to it and to learn how to thrive in that environment. Because I think, you know, so much unhappiness that I see with people is they're trying to change something they really have no control over. Oh my gosh. All the time. Right. I struggle, I struggle with it in my job every day. It's, you know, I I have staff 
that are, you know, they get upset about stuff that literally you have zero control over. And, you know, it's like, how do you teach somebody that that's just not worth your energy? Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, know. what you're saying, there's a beauty to this. And I think it's, I feel like the the best artists in photography are ones that can go out in any conditions, any um, location, adapt to what they find and make it work. You know, like I was going back to that versus project that I have going, you know, where to me it's nature telling us like those rocks are telling us you can build these grand monuments to your creativity, you know, in the form of these beautiful pieces of architecture, but in the end, those will be gone and these rocks will still be here. I mean, yes, they're being weathered slowly, but to me, the weathering has made them even more beautiful. You know, it's like, okay. So like in Joshua tree, when you read about these rocks, you know, they say that they stood so much, that these rocks were so much taller, but millions of years of weathering has brought them down to these levels. And I don't know if you've ever been to Joshua tree. Uh, I have not. <sighs> You know, I stand among the rocks and I'm like, you know, you, f you feel this small kind of thing. Um, right. So, you know, other lessons I've learned, um, the Grand Canyon. I distinctly remember this. I was there with, we were camping. Uh, it was like a, a one or two night camping, you know, and it was like in a regular campground. It wasn't even, you know, backpacking into the Grand Canyon kind of thing. Just like, you know, campground with bathrooms. And I was with a friend who had never experienced a dark sky, hmm. which, you know, growing up as a child in the Philippines, we didn't even have electricity until I think like, I remember my grandparents' place, they lived on a different island than we did. Like they didn't even have electricity until I was like eight years old. <laughs> right. So I'm, I have very vivid memories of the dark sky. Yeah. You know, of the Milky Way, of seeing, you know, you're seeing um, meteorites across, you know, that the Milky Way is this, like, it's this bright cloud in the sky. And she'd never experienced this. And so I said, well, let's, I go, this will be cool, you know. So we go out and went back to where, you know, the rim was. And we were sitting, not, you know, right next to the rim where we can fall off and die. <laughs> but, you know, like at an overlook with a railing kind of thing. And we were just sitting there and I got really quiet. And so we weren't even talking and I could feel the presence of that Canyon, you know, like in some way it was very, it was, it was almost like this, it was a very present entity to me. Mm. And you know, the next day, I remember like walking out there the next day. And this is even my first time at the Grand Canyon. Like when we were kids, we went on all kinds of national park trips kind of thing. But that weekend, for whatever reason, I was really connecting to the landscape, the place. And I was just standing there, you know, looking, observing those different layers and knowing that that took millions of years. That river cut through, the Colorado River cut through the canyon. And to me, I came away from that thinking, you know, there's so much beauty in pain in a way that it was like the Colorado River was carving through that canyon and maybe it was painful in some way, but it needed that 
for to reveal those beautiful layers of that canyon to create that magnificent scene for us to you know appreciate. Mm-hmm. And to me, a lot of that is is what we go through in life. You know, so much of a person, a human's, a person's beauty isn't revealed until they go through something difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in that brokenness that we feel, and it's in that vulnerability that we feel connected to other people. And that to me, I see when I point my cameras, you know, at the world. So I'm like, it's there. I'm seeing that beauty because the earth was had to go through some pain in order to reveal that. Hmm. I had a similar experience um, three years ago. I went to uh, Toro Weep in the Grand Canyon. Okay. And, um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of people like to shoot sunrise there because you get this really amazing glow on the Canyon wall and Mm -hmm. you're kind of below the Canyon wall and you're shooting uh, North and you can see the river just cut through the whole frame, uh-huh. and it's amazing. But I went up there at night to do star trails, uh-huh. and it's you know it's about eight hundred, twelve hundred, fifteen hundred feet. I don't know. It's that's a drop off, and it's yeah, you're you're right on the edge to shoot that scene. And uh, yeah, I remember just feeling super humble about my existence as a person on Earth. You know, you've got the stars above you and you've got this giant canyon below you and the wind is blowing and you're just you're just there for the ride you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah Um, right i mean like how many millions of years did it take for the that starlight to reach us yeah Yeah. i I love those moments where you just feel uh small Mm -hmm. i i it sounds weird, right? Like you want to feel big, bigger than life. But I like it when nature's like, nah, you're just a little speck, pal. You know? Right. Although I feel small almost every day because I'm like five two. <laughs> oh yeah. Right. And you know, my students are like way taller than me. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, no, I appreciate what you said about that. Cool. Well, so, you know, wrapping up, I'm curious, who would you recommend our listeners know about or hear from here on the podcast? Ooh, yeah, I know you've had so many good people on your show. I would love to hear, actually, I'd love to hear Bruce Percy on your show. <laughs> He's one of my favorite photographers, but I don't think you've had him on, right? No, and I hear he's opinionated, which I love. You know, I've heard him on other podcasts. Oh man, I just need to reach out again, I guess. Yeah, I've heard him on other podcasts. Um, he's I've seen him on a few videos talk about, but he's he has a very I love his approach to photography. Yeah. Um, you know, the how he I love how he can articulate his process and his continued evolution as a photographer. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can see and um you know, he, he works at putting books together and he works on these projects and just, it's just fascinating what he has to say. Yeah. Um, another one is Clyde Butcher. Mm-hmm. He's a landscape, uh, large format photographer and he specializes in, um, like the Cypress, the Cypress is down in South. Yep. Um, which to me is like large format photography in a Cypress, you know, swamp. Right. <laughs> like, 
I thought I, it was hard carrying my equipment. I'm thinking, wow, you know, I think he shoots eight by 10 too. That's a, that's some commitment to the craft right there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I had dreams of doing large format, but then when I learned more, looked more into it, I was like, Ooh, that's, that's kind of complicated. Um, another one is Huntington Witherill. He has very, um, he kind of, his work reminds me of somewhat of Edward Weston mm-hmm. and his approach. So I think he'd be really cool. And, you know, he, he specializes in black and white. Um, and then last one, um, Michael Kenna. Man, you're really, uh, you're really raising the bar over here. <laughs> I just love Michael Kenna's work. He's, he's like the black and, you know, Bruce Percy's like the color version of Michael Kenna because Michael Kenna specializes in black and white photography. Yeah. And they, I think they still both shoot. I know Bruce Percy shoots film. Very um, cool. And I think, I don't know if Michael Kenna does any digital work, but he just has some, you know, his, his photography just makes me pause. You know, all of these guys that I've recommended that just makes you pause and makes you think. Um, another really? photographer I would love, but he's passed away was um, Herb Ritz. Okay. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. I'm not. He's actually a portrait photographer. Okay. And he, he passed away, I think in the sometime in the nineties, I, I could be wrong with that, but his black and white work is just, you know, superb, marvelous. Um, he did, he did the true blue album, the cover shot for Madonna's true blue album. Okay. And then interestingly, he was the director for Janet Jackson's love will never do video. Interesting. Yeah, but you should look him up. Herb Ritz. Okay. Really cool. Excellent. Yeah, really interesting photographer. Cool. Well, Zoe, this has been very fun. Yeah, it's been great talking about photography, trying to <laughs> articulate what I think. <laughs> I know it's uh, it's not as easy as it sounds to uh, do it over an audio format to talk about a visual art. Yeah, right. But somehow you're able to do it on this podcast. Well, I think you did a fine job yourself. Well, thank you. Well, thanks again to Zoe for joining me for a great conversation on the podcast. You should check out her photographs by visiting her website at zoepemintuin.com. I would like to take a moment to thank Mary Vega for bumping up her Patreon support. It really means a lot to me that listeners value the content that we are creating here on the show. I also want to thank our newest Patreon supporter, Mark Gardner. Mark has been teaching workshops with Bruce Barnbaum for many years, and he has some great workshop offerings coming up next year in the Olympic Peninsula. You can learn more about those by going to his website at photoartbymg.com. Thanks for your support, Mark. Lastly, I'd also like to take a moment to thank the rest of our amazing Patreon supporters who help out at the $20 per month level or higher. Without their generous support, the podcast would not exist, and you would not be listening to these episodes. They include Gary Randall, David Kingham, Eric Stensland, Jeff Peterson, Charlotte Gibb, Ken Dono, Anton Everine, William Nurse, Richard Wong, Matthias Jolin, Suzanne Mathia, Frank Otto Peterson, Michael Rung, John Whitaker, Joshua Wallace, Drew Armstrong, Jim Valencourt, Jennifer King, Craig Young, Adam Bulliard, 
Michael DeMiola, Chuck Mora, Jacob Buchowski, J. Fritz Rumpf, Charlie Vandenbrock, Jose Panikuk, Anton Gorlin, Rob Patterson, Jeff Risher, and Mark Gardner. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.